Well, I turn to this evening's scripture reading for the sermon. As we come tonight to the topic of Christ the priest, so we consider Christ's priesthood. I turn to Psalm 110, which predicts the one who is both king and priest for his people before God. And so we read now God's holy word as he gave to David to write this psalm, Psalm 110, the psalm of David, which tells us, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the days of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Let's come before the Lord in prayer once again. Lord, we do thank you that you are a faithful God who has fulfilled these words and that you are fulfilling these words, that you are even now making a footstool for Christ of his enemies and that Christ even now is reigning at the right hand of God. And so we thank you that that we have one who is both our king and our priest. And we ask that you would grant that more and more uh, we would be submitting to him and that uh, therefore the, this evening the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, lately we have been Uh, studying the role of Christ as mediator. And we saw him last time uh, in his mediatorial office as king. And indeed, uh, just as uh, we read then of of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem when he was welcomed by uh, his people or by the people of Israel as the rightful king of David's line, We see this evening in Mark's uh, account, as I'll read here shortly, uh, that uh, his office as king was the most frequently cited reason uh, for putting him to death. When he was put to death, we also see that he did nothing in his trial and leading up to that time to prevent it from happening. In fact, he went willingly, as we know from his prayer in the garden prior to his arrest that he did pray in his human nature. He asked God, let this cup pass from me. He did not want this to happen. He didn't want to have to go through it, but he perfectly submitted and said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And I'll just read some portions of Mark chapter 15 here so you can see what's going on at his trial and leading up to his death. Starting at the beginning of the chapter, 
Mark tells us immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. So this is after uh, Jesus has uh, been before the council, the Sanhedrin, and he finally, when he was adjured by the high priest to answer, he had said nothing in his defense until that point, uh, but he was asked whether to answer if he was the son of the Most High, and he said he was, and that they would see him coming in the clouds. And the high priest said, well, this is blasphemy, so what, el- what other evidence do you need? Uh, is he not deserving of death? And of course, the, the council said he was deserving of death. But of course, because they could not put Jesus to death under the Roman Empire, they, they had to go to the Romans to get the Romans to put him to death. And what could they do? To, to get Jesus put to death by the Romans. Well, uh, they could accuse him of claiming to be the king of the Jews because that would be considered insurrection under the Roman law, which, of course, would receive the penalty of crucifixion. And so we're told here, starting at verse 2 then of Mark 15, then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. He is king of the Jews. Now we get a lot more of the conversation as we read in John's account that that he tells Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would even now be fighting to free me. So Pilate was actually satisfied that Jesus was not guilty of anything that deserved death under Roman law. But we're told here, and the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. So again, he says nothing in his defense to get out of this. He's going to offer himself freely. Then Pilate asked him again, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. And then after being told that Pilate had the custom of freeing somebody, freeing a political prisoner at the time of Passover, probably to keep the crowds. There would be upwards, uh, or actually beyond, two million people often gathered at Jerusalem, and the Romans wanted to to try to keep them satisfied. And so one of the things that Pilate would do is he would release to them a prisoner that they asked to try to sort of uh, keep people from resenting the Romans and rising up against them when there were so many gathered at Jerusalem. And then in verse 9, we're told, But Pilate answered them, answered the crowd, You're saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that they should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them, What, do you, what then do you want me to do with him who, is, who you call the king of the Jews? So notice the king of the Jews keeps coming up here. They cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. So they wanted Jesus to be crucified. And down in verse 26, we're told the inscription of his accusation was written above, The King of the Jews. That was the crime, so-called, for which he was put to death. But we also recognize that in addition to being king, When Christ went through this, when Jesus voluntarily did this and he didn't do anything to defend himself so that he would get put to death, he was actually fulfilling also his office as priest. He was being put to death 
for this crime of having claimed to be a king, so-called crime. But he was also offering up himself as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. So he was fulfilling there his office also as priest. Psalm 110 teaches that Christ is king and priest. And we even see something of, touched upon of his office of, of prophet in this. He's the one who declares the Lord's word. But we'll talk about that more, Lord willing, next time. We note that he's proclaimed as king. He's seated at the right hand of the Lord until his enemy is made his, his footstool in verse 1, which uh, Jesus brings up as a question. In the Synoptic Gospels, we hear him asking his disciples, how is it that they say that the Christ would be the son of David? Well, of course, there are many biblical reasons why people would say the Christ must be the son of David. One of the psalm selections requested this evening, from Psalm 89, talks about that promise that David would have a son to sit on his throne forever. And Jesus is the one who fulfills that promise. But Jesus points out, well, uh, David himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So if the, the Christ is David's son, how can he also be his Lord? Because we know that the ancestor, the father, is superior to the descendant, the son. So how is it that this descendant could be David's Lord if he is David's son? Well, only if he is God incarnate. And so Jesus was trying to get people to think about that. And of course, in verse 2, we see his his kingship, the Lord shall send the rod or the scepter of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. So here's a king. But then also, we come down to verse 4, and we say the Lord, we, we see the words, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So he's both a king and a priest. In Genesis 14, Abraham meets a man named Melchizedek. His name literally means king of righteousness. He's also, we're told, the king of Salem. Now, Salem is the future city of Jerusalem, but Salem literally means peace. And so Hebrews tells us uh, in, in this symbolic way, he's called the king of peace. So he's the king of righteousness, he's the king of peace. But Moses also tells us there in Genesis that he is priest of God Most High. As Hebrews 7 tells us, Melchizedek's priesthood was not passed on to anyone else. He didn't have a son that this office automatically passed to. And the scriptures do not record anything about Melchizedek's birth or his ancestry. The scriptures do not record anything about Melchizedek's death. And so, in that sense, he is a type and figure of Christ, who, being eternal God, has no beginning or ending. In fact, many uh, Bible scholars believe that Melchizedek actually is a pre-incarnate appearing of the Son of God. And, and well, he could be, though uh, it's not an absolutely certain thing. Uh, Hebrews doesn't say... Melchizedek is Christ, says he's like Christ. <laughs> so, so there we, we have to, I think, be cautious and not say we know for certain that he is a pre-incarnate appearing of Christ, but he might be. 
There are other times that we're absolutely certain from the wording of Scripture that when uh, a man appears and that that he is, and we find that he is God, like the commander of the Lord's army uh, who appears to Joshua, and it turns out as we as we dig into the Scripture, we see that he actually is God. His very presence makes the ground on which Joshua is walking holy. Or when the Lord appears and wrestles with Jacob, or he appears with Abraham and speaks with him, uh, we know for good scriptural reasons, that that is the Son of God, that is God the Son, uh, come and appearing prior to his incarnation. We don't have that kind of certain language with Melchizedek, but it's a possibility. But when we think about Melchizedek's priesthood, receiving a, a priesthood like Melchizedek's for God's anointed king means that Jesus was and is a priest forever, as Psalm 110 says, of God Most High. Because the scriptures, again, purposefully do not tell us anything about Melchizedek's beginning or ending. He's not a priest after the order of Aaron, descended from Abraham, but he's a priest of the order, as it were, of the type of a priest to whom Abraham tithed and who blessed Abraham, who was therefore in that sense superior to Abraham. Christ is superior to Abraham. As we consider, as we see in Galatians 3, for example, that uh, everybody who believes in Christ is a son of Abraham. Therefore, we see that Christ is our superior priest. He is our great high priest greater than any priest of the line of Aaron, and a priest who is a priest, as Psalm 110 here says, forever. And like Melchizedek also, he is both a king and a priest. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2, verses 5-6, through 6, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom. So here in his mediatorial role, not only is he a king, as we've seen before, but he's one who gave himself a ransom. He offered himself. One of several important things Christ has done for us as mediator is to give himself as a ransom for his chosen people. Crucial to the Old Testament priest's office was the offering up of sacrifices on behalf of God's people that they might be reconciled to the Lord. Christ, as the perfect priest, offered not a fallible sacrifice, but offered an infallible sacrifice himself. As Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats can't really pay for human sin, but Jesus can. He offered himself as the perfect priest. He makes the perfect offering, and he offers himself as the perfect sacrifice the sinless, unblemished Lamb of God. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, there he's actually citing Isaiah 53, by his wounds you have been healed. So, As our high priest, Jesus made the appropriate sacrifice for sin by going willingly 
to the cross. He could find no better sacrifice to offer than himself. But his priestly office didn't actually end then. Priests did other things besides offering sacrifice. They interceded for the people. Remember the Lord promised our Lord, that is the Father said to the Son here in Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So his priesthood didn't end when he offered himself as the once for all sacrifice, but it continues. Paul points out in Romans 8 verse 34, Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He continues to intercede. While offering sacrifices is a major part of a priest's office, it's one task of several that fall under the priestly duty to intercede with God for his people. In the Old Testament, this was figured in the whole sacrificial system. Yes, the sacrifices were made, but also there were things like the incense being burned by the priests in the holy place in the temple to represent the prayers of the people rising up to the Lord. In the preparing of sacramental meals, think of the showbread that they prepared weekly and placed on the table of showbread in the temple. They tended the temple. They were the only ones who could enter the holy place to tend the lamps and to offer the incense. The high priest, once a year, would go into the Holy of Holies, which was, as it were, God's throne room on earth. Christ does all of these things in his office of priest. He tends the temple, which is the church. He receives our prayers, and in his name we make our prayers to God. He has sacramental meals with us in the Lord's Supper. He's constantly interceding for us. All of those things from the Old Testament there that I just spoke of are mediatorial intercedings, intercessions with God on behalf of God's people. And Christ as the one who fulfills these types and shadows continually intercedes for us with the Father. The Shorter Catechism summarizes these things in question and answer 25, which asks, how, how doth Christ execute the office of a priest? And the answer is, Christ executeth the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God, and in making continual intercession for us. The Larger Catechism expands on this and says, Christ executeth the office of a priest. It is once offering himself a sacrifice without spot to God to be a reconciliation for the sins of his people and in making continual intercession for them. So notice that there, the catechisms there are recognizing that Christ not only offered himself but makes a continual intercession for his people. In terms of his state of humil- humiliation, Christ was a priest most pointedly in his suffering and death. Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. 1 Peter 4.1, Christ suffered in the flesh. Isaiah 53.12, predicted he poured out his soul to death. 
Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In his exaltation, though, Christ also is our priest. And that he continues to intercede for us. Do you ever think about what's implied by the fact that when Christ was raised up with a glorified body, he, he can never suffer again, he can't die again, but in that perfect glorified body, this body that's suitable for the heavenly presence of the Lord, he still has the marks of his crucifixion on him. I think that's unique to Jesus. I don't believe that if I die in a car crash and my body is mangled, that on the day of resurrection I'll rise up with a mangled body and exist like that forever. But Jesus particularly has the marks of his crucifixion on his body to this day. And one implication of that is that as you and I sin, and he's in the holy presence of God in heaven, he's still bearing in his human body the marks of the sacrifice that paid for those sins. And so he makes continual intercession for us. There are also Uh, glorifying to him. One side of the coin is that they glorify him because they're a badge of honor, as it were, to show what he did in his perfect submission to the Lord. But on the other side of that coin, we see that they are a continual statement that your sins are paid for. When I sin, if it were possible for Satan to accuse me before the Father, of course, that we're told that he can no longer do that. I believe that's what's being spoken of in Scripture when Jesus, for example, says he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He can't come like he did for Job and come before God and say, hey, look at how fallen your people are. Look at how far short they fall of your holy standard. If anyone were to accuse you or or I of sin before God, He looks at us and he sees Christ's righteousness. Or another way of looking at it is he looks at Christ's wounds and sees those are paid for already. The penalty has been paid. But Christ is not a mere passive intercessor either where he just stands in the presence of God with the wounds that show that he has paid the penalty for the sins of his people. He's not just our leader, or our lawyer rather, uh, pleading on our behalf to the judge. He also is the judge. How would you like that? If you ever were accused of something and brought before a judge and you find out that your defense lawyer is the judge, you've got a pretty good chance of getting off, I would dare say. Remember from before, he is the king. In Daniel 7, we read of, of his having been seated with dominion and glory and a kingdom forever. In Matthew 28, he declared, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's not a beggar asking God, pretty please, could you forgive my people? No, he's the king of the universe declaring, I have made satisfaction, they are forgiven. That's the great thing about having a perfect high priest who in his mediatorial 
office is also king, like Melchizedek of old. Christ is our priest in several ways. He's our priest in that he is a priest and king forever after the order of Melchizedek. That is, he is one whose priesthood does not end. Secondly, he's the only mediator between God and man who can reconcile us to God by offering himself an unblemished sacrifice, a ransom for his elect. We also see that he bore our sins in his body, so again, he was the perfect sacrifice. But he also, number four, makes continual intercession for us. And five, he sovereignly declares. He declares those people for whom he died. He declares his priestly work accomplished. Day by day, moment by moment, his stripes, his wounds, appeal for the forgiveness of his people's sins. And day by day, moment by moment, as king, he declares them to be forgiven. What a great king and priest we have in our perfect mediator, Jesus Christ. Put your trust in him and in him alone, for there is no other who has such a mediatorial office and who can truly save you. Let's pray. Lord, our creator and redeemer, we do give you thanks for the priestly office of our Savior, Jesus Christ. As he has reconciled us to you, we pray that we may live as those who are reconciled, that we might live reconciled lives, as it were, that we might do our utmost to live unto righteousness and to die unto sin. By the power of the Holy Spirit and through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.